even before it was published, the new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, had proven controversial, and many of the sharpest attacks were coming from conservatives. Yoram Hazoni, the author of Conservatism, A Rediscovery, is about to explain himself. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation and president of the Herzl Institute, Yoram Hazoni received his undergraduate degree from Princeton and his doctorate in political philosophy, not, I notice, political science, but political philosophy from Rutgers. With the publication of his 2018 book, The Virtue of Nationalism, Dr. Hazoni became one of the leading proponents of a new kind of conservatism, national conservatism. Yoram Hazoni's newest book, published as it happens this very day. You may now order this book on Amazon. No more pre-order, order. order. Uh, Yoram Hazoni's latest book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. What is national conservatism? Why does conservatism need to be rediscovered? We're about to find out. Yoram, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm about to pr produce two quite complicated sentences from your book, Yoram. To the extent that Anglo-American conservatism has become confused with liberalism, it has, for just this reason, become incapable of conserving anything at all. Indeed, in our day, conservatives have largely become bystanders, gaping in astonishment as the consuming fire of cultural revolution destroys everything in its path." Close quote. Okay. Let's start with some definitions and treat me like a slow student. And let's begin with liberalism. As you are well aware, doctorate in political philosophy, liberalism is tricky. There's 18th century and earlier liberalism, which is centered on notions of individual liberty. And by at least the mid 20th century, liberalism starts to emphasize state control and has now morphed into wokeness, progressivism, and so forth. How are you using the term liberalism when you, when you argue that conservatism has become confused with liberalism? Okay, well, I, usually uh, I'm, I'm referring to a particular kind of liberalism. It's enlightenment liberalism, uh, the, the liberalism that is descended from uh, rationalist thinkers you know, of, of the, the 18th century. And the reason that that's important to us today is because after the Second World War, uh, Enlightenment liberalism was um, embraced uh, by uh, uh, elites, Washington elites, we can say American elites, British elites, and across Europe as an alternative model for how we should think about politics in Western nations. Prior to that, there had been, you know, uh, uh, what you could call Christian democracy. Uh, FDR was still calling America God-fearing democracy on the eve of World War II. He's, but he used the term Christian civilization as well. Yeah, yes. So, Yoram, but this is where, again, I'm a slow student. William F. Buckley Jr. used to say that it is the job, well, he said many things, of course. He had a long career and he was very prolific, but one of the points he made a number of times was 
that it is the job of conservatism to conserve the founding principles. And those founders, we're talking about John Locke, that's also a form of liberalism, classical liberalism, the kind of liberalism Margaret Thatcher always used to say she was a classical liberal. How are, are that's what you disapprove of? Or have I, are there two different kinds of liberalisms that we really must disentangle right from the start? Let me go back to your first question, which, sure. is, which right. is defining liberalism. All right, go okay. ahead. Uh, uh, as I write in the book, when I speak of liberalism, I'm talking about uh, a, uh, a principled political position that regards politics as beginning with the freedom and equality of the individual person. Right. In, in nature. That's kind of a, 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 an assumed first principle. A second principle that the individual um, takes upon himself or herself political obligations uh, by consent. In general, that consent is the engine that drives political obligation. And uh, in, in the third, 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 the third principle is that reason, uh, that human reason is sufficiently powerful so that men and women at all times and places can come to these first principles and on the basis of these first principles uh, deduce the appropriate, the universally appropriate form of government. And this kind of liberalism was embraced post-World War II as a kind of a solution to the horrors of the two world wars and the Holocaust mm -hmm. in the United States and Britain and elsewhere. And, and that's what you're describing is French, it's Enlightenment, it's Rousseau. That's not Locke, it's certainly not Burke. So that liberalism that you just described is not the liberalism of the founders, every, correct? Every one of those axioms appears in the first few pages of Locke's second treatise of government. You're absolutely right that Rousseau then takes, takes these axioms and imports them into France, but the French, when they, they were importing it, they believed that they were importing John Locke. And I think there's actually a good reason to think that they were right about that. But look, for the sake of, you know, uh, liberalism, conservatism, let's understand that whether we agree that, you know, that Locke is a conservative or not, for the purpose of, of this conversation, the question is whether the, uh, the, tri the, the, the conservatives uh, by the conservatives, I mean the the uh, the English common law tradition, uh, Selden, Blackstone, uh, Burke. You can throw right. in Montesquieu as a kind of into that. Whether they, when they looked at uh, this kind of liberalism, did they see that as something that they that that they, th they thought was a sufficient description of the political world? My argument is that they did not consider it to be a sufficient description of the political world, and that those um, uh, those empiricist thinkers who uh, looked at this liberal tradition and said, "Holy smokes! If you adopt that alone as your description of politics, you won't understand anything. And if you try to implement implement it, you'll destroy the political world." Th those thinkers ended up being called conservatives and their worldview is based on uh, begins from a completely different place it begins not with the uh the the free and equal individual it begins with the the nation as an inherited 
um, uh, the, the nation is a bearer of political and religious traditions, which people then uh, receive. Now, in the case of, you know, of Britain and the United States, the inherited tradition also includes all sorts of freedoms. Nevertheless, the starting place for a conservative is what do we need to do in order for our nation to be able to persist through time? What do we need to do in order to be able to make sure that ideas, behaviors, and institutions propagate themselves from one generation to the next? Mm -hmm. And those are two very different ways of looking at politics. All right. Now, we'll come back to the founders. Uh, I'll put that one aside for a moment so we can keep going here. So what goes wrong? We, we have conservatism. Let's go to mid-century. And the conservatism of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley Jr. is, with certain qualifications, conservatism of which you approve. Why? And then what has gone wrong with conservatism, really, in our lifetimes? Uh, you're yes. younger than I am, but in your lifetime, something's gone wrong, yes. which is why conservatism needs to be rediscovered. Yes. All right. So. Uh, where does where do Reagan gold where does mid-century American conservatism fit in this uh, it's not yet confused I think correct not, not yet confused is a very strong way of putting it all right uh, let's say that it has it has its good points and its bad points and by the way a, a, as you know from 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 the book I I entered the conservative movement as a you know as a as a college activist founding a student magazine. I read about it in... in very explicitly uh, inspired yes. by Ronald Reagan. Very explicitly. Right. I, I had uh, Ronald Reagan, Let's Make America Great Again on my wall. As a, that poster was on my wall in high school. And, uh, and I've never deviated from, from my love of uh, uh, Reagan. Um, and uh, so a certain part of this book is, is trying to explain what's the relationship between national conservatives and, 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 and Reagan, but we'll get to that. So the question about the 1960s is this. Um, William Buckley founds a magazine in 1955 called National Review. And he, his conception was that this is a, a coalition endeavor. He's gathering together all the forces that are, are, are going to be willing to join together to fight com, a, com, rampant communism abroad and rising socialism at home. And to do that, he had to bring together, uh, in, in particular, two, two different approaches. One ended up being called libertarian. Mm -hmm. You could say classical liberalism or true liberalism. In general, a view that, the view that I've already described that says the, the liberty and equality of the indiv individual is the foundation of all politics. Um, so that's that that's individuals writers such as Frank Meyer, right? And at the same time, he also brings into this coalition people like Russell Kirk, who build on the uh, uh, the Burkean common law tradition, uh, the the British inheritance, and say, um, uh, look, the key the key to the to to the strength and continuity of the nation is is its traditions, its religious and political traditions. And can, can, may I sum that up to make sure I'm following you? You have one, you have the sort of libertarian position, which says we start with the freedom of the individual. And then you have Russell Kirk, who's a Burkean, saying, yes, but who, what makes the individual? What gives the individual 
judgment, the ability to make political choices. And the answer to that is the nation or the society. We, this, all, this is the Aristotelian point. Man is a political animal, right? That we are, this notion that man is born free and everywhere is, is in chains is nonsense. It requires society to establish what we recognize as conditions of freedom. Have I got that? Exactly right. All right. Perfect. Well, okay. th thank you, Professor. All right. <laughs> so, I'll so, take my grade now. <laughs> so fusionism is, uh, is, first of all, a necessary alliance. Fusionism is, is putting these two together. Right. By the mid-1960s, Buckley's coalition bringing together uh, liberals and conservatives to fight Marxism and socialism, that is given the name of fusionism. Okay, or, or you can call it Cold War conservatism. Fusionism is the nickname that a lot of people use. Now, what is, is it successful? You're darn right it's successful. Right. That's the movement that ultimately uh, brings about the Reagan-Thatcher years, the defeat of the Soviet Union, and the defeat of, of social, socialist ideology for an entire generation in America, Britain, and beyond. So in, in, in that sense, a very admirable movement and very difficult to, to find anything wrong with it. What's, what went wrong is that after the, after the Berlin Wall falls, after Reagan and Thatcher leave, leave the stage, what comes after that? Now, uh, people who I think had their finger on the pulse of uh, Reagan conservatism, let's say Irving Kristol was a, a personal teacher of of mine, someone who I greatly admired, uh, he understood um, uh, political conservatism, Anglo-American conservatism to be founded on three things, religion, nationalism, and uh, economic growth, where he put the emphasis, emphasis on religion, that religion and nationalism are required in order to provide the, uh, the, the framework, the guardrails that prevent uh, the pursuit of economic growth from uh, from from turning into licentiousness and 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 uh, okay. uh, and, and and undermining the, the the capacity of the nation to continue to exist. Reagan understood this very well. Thatcher understood this very well. The question is, what happens after they leave? We get economic growth and nothing but economic right. growth. Right, and is the total focus of I, I, conservatism. I, I, that that is exactly right. as, as I understand it. That nationalism and religion drop out of the mix. And uh, what is called conservatism then becomes all liberty all the time. Okay. All right, Yoram. So now let me try to place the national... Are you happy with that phrase? National conservatism is... Uh, I, I am I happy with the phrase. I'm 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 happy. Are you at least stuck with it? No, May no, I no, use I, the no, phrase? No, I'm happy. I'm happy with the phrase. I'm I'm sorry that it that it, that it was necessary because right. because as far as I'm concerned, Anglo-American conservatism has uh, has always had the nation at the center. All right. And uh, and uh, you know so it, it's kind of a it's kind of a redundant phrase to say national conservative. It, when what you mean is conservatism properly understood. Yes. All right. Exactly so. But okay. it was necessary at the it, it it's necessary today for a simple reason that that the um, uh, the post Berlin Wall uh, international movement of of uh, the the project of taking uh, um, 
of taking liberalism, the politics understood through the lens of the freedom of freedom and equality of the individual alone, and turning that into a world order, into a single rule of law that's going to uh, embrace the entire globe, as you know, George H.W. Bush put it wonderfully and memorably. That project, which then ends up being called the conservative project, is it is in many respects the opposite of uh, of a uh, uh, conservative a, is modest. It's about neighborhood, and in this in the American case, it's this nation. We should worry about our borders, freedom at home, trade with other nations. Correct? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, the, the, you could take Irving Kristol and Jean Kirkpatrick. Uh, in response to the the fall of the Berlin Wall, their their vision was, the war is over. Let's bring the boys home. We need to deal with social decay and uh, at home. Irving Kristol even wrote. Now this is not in my notes. I'm just remembering this, but I'll bet you'll be able to. You'll remember it as well. Early '90s, I think he wrote. I think it was the early '90s, but I know for sure he wrote two or three columns in the Wall Street Journal, thinking arguing that we ought to reconsider NATO. Absolutely. That it was in our interest for the Europeans to defend themselves, but it was also in the interest of the Europeans. Absolutely. All right. So, Joram, let me place, attempt to place national conservatism in the current environment, in the current intellectual environment. All right. Patrick Deneen of Notre Dame wrote a book, Why Liberalism Failed. And he's talking about the liberalism, as I understand it, he's talking about the liberalism of the founders, the old classical liberalism, a term that you clearly don't quite care for because you think even that confuses a couple of strands. Still, here's Deneen. A political philosophy put into effect that the birth of the United States has been shattered. The liberal state expands to control nearly every aspect of life while citizens regard government as a distant and uncontrollable power. He wants to refound the country. He believes that the founding principles were flawed at the moment of inception. Against that, I think to myself, Bill Buckley saying, if conservatism is conserving anything, it's conserving the founding. So this is what makes me a little bit nervous that I've, I've well, no, wait a moment. You, you, you do in the book, you talk, well, here, this, I'm quoting you. The Federalist parties, George Washington, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton, I'm quoting from your book, were not only conservatives, but American nationalists. Yes. So you approve of at least some of the founders. The Federalist Jeffersonian opponents were not only Enlightenment liberals, but anti nationalist, yes. close quote. Okay, so here's what I want to know from you, just really squarely. Do you approve of the founding of the United States of America? Yes. Well, what a relief, I have to say. <laughs> okay, so what do you say no, to Patrick? But, but, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, absolutely, I think, I, I, I think the American Constitution is uh, marvelous. I think it's a, 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 a wonderful inheritance certainly among the best political constitutions that the world has ever seen. Uh, but there's an argument about why is it so good? Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, the view of uh, John Adams or, or, uh, or, or Hamilton or the members of their party 
is that what's so good about the American Constitution is that it fundamentally is the continuation of the British Constitution, which Adam says was is the best constitution that ever there ever was in the world. The American Revolution, properly understood, was a conservative revolution. They wanted to reassert their rights as Englishmen. Yes. The radical departure was take was taking place in the North government under George III. Yeah. They were simply they were not this, as distinct from the French Revolution, which was trying to reinvent the world. Absolutely. The founders wanted their rights back. Yes. Correct. Yes. All right. That's 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 exactly so. The 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 uh, the one twist that I would put into this is that the Constitution, what we call the Constitution, the Constitution of 1787 is the second American constitution. Before that, there was a failed constitution in 1777 mm -hmm. that we call the Articles of the Confederation. And th that, uh, th that 1777, 1777 constitution created something that was untraditional, that was unlike the, the, the British experience of, uh, of, of, of what government is. It was so weak that that it was incapable of doing things like like uh, uh, raising arm, an army, paying for an army, it, uh, uh, imposing on 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 the states the, the the conditions of a treaty duly agreed with foreign government. During already during the revolution, George Washington and many of his officers came to see the first American Constitution, the one that was that was kind of freedom, freedom, freedom all the time. That, that was sought maximal freedom as a disaster that would lead America to collapse. And they began to push the idea of a national, a, a united national constitution that would be modeled on the British model. All right. That's, that's where the constitution comes from. Uh, most of the people at the American... A conservative revolution within the revolution. So yes, it's a, it, it's a, it, we conservatives call it a restoration. All right. That the, uh, the, uh, the shackles of the, uh, of the British Constitution were in fact uh, broken in 1776 and 1777. They tried that for 10 or 11 years. And then there was a restoration led by Washington to, to bring back the, the, the most important principles of the British Constitution. This is all so far tremendously reassuring and I'm following you, but now I'm bracing myself because I have to ask about Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm going to make a, I, I will engage in a preemptive capitulation and I'm going to grant you that after the French Revolution, after 1789, Jefferson really does fall in love with that revolution too much. I mean, I can see he falls for the whole enlightenment notion of recreating that. He, he's, that's not good. But we're talking about Jefferson in 1776, and we've got that high-flown but glorious preamble, but then we've got those specific charges against George III, which ground the declaration in the, the, they're attaching the Declaration to the notions of English common law, of specificity, of, of the empirical tradition. So do you approve of that Thomas Jefferson and that document? Look, the, the American Declaration of Independence was not intended to be read as a philosophical treatise. It's a political, it's a political document which is written beautifully and achieves various aims very well. Uh, the, the, the problem is not in 
uh, in Jefferson's language. The problem is in later interpreters, especially after the Second World War, who take the American Declaration of Independence as being a kind of the, the, the foundation of an alternate religious framework. Instead of the, uh, the, 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 the conservative Christian nationalist inheritance that the United States had had up until then, now we're going to take the Declaration of Independence or, or one paragraph from the De Declaration of Independence, use it to replace the Bible as our scripture and, and to, uh, to replace George Washington okay, as the, the father of our country with Thomas Jefferson. And, and then things go badly. Okay, we're coming as right back to the cur current moment, but I, st I still on the Declaration, wh what about Lincoln? He reveres the Declaration. He reads that into his understanding in the Gettysburg Address, certainly. Um, are you comfortable with Lincoln, or is he is he anticipating the? You know, I I, I just I, I I don't feel that it's my you know place to judge all the great men in American history. No, but it's I'm my place to use them to judge you. <laughs> That's see. what's going no, on. But, I no, want to know just, to the extent to which I, you're in. Am I am I comfortable? Lincoln is a great man. Yeah. And uh, with um, his um, um, sorry. and among uh, among his achievements is that uh, that he is capable of producing a rec uh, um, a rhetoric that uh, uh, fuses Jefferson's um, liberal rationalist uh, language with a return to Old Testament biblicism. And that, that combination is good for America at that time. Okay. The, the, uh, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. You can hear the Bible in every sentence Lincoln he, speaks. He, he is a conservative nationalist, like the Federalists were, uh, you know, I, I can, uh, you know, there are definitely t turns of phrase that I don't like, but it, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. What, what matters is that in the 1960s, people look back and say, you know what? Uh, we love uh, Lincoln's, um, uh, his rationalist, universalist liberalism, and we don't need his biblicism. We don't need his Old Testament. And they 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 they, they uh, twist and turn him and into a a uh, uh, into what they need at the time, which okay. which is uh, an Enlightenment liberal. Okay, so a, a, another attempt to um, place your place national conservatism conservatism that you're rediscovering here in the current framework. Your friend, my friend, Christopher Demuth. Your friend and collaborator actually wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal, quote, when the American left was liberal and reformist, conservatives played our customary role as moderators of change. But today's woke progressivism isn't reformist. It seeks to turn the world upside down. When the leftward party in a two-party system is seized by such radicalism, the conservative instinct for moderation, moderation is futile. National conservatives recognize that in today's politics, the excesses are the essence. We must shift to opposing revolution, close quote. Okay, so Krista Muth doesn't want to refound the country. Uh, he's happy with conservatism, but in the present moment, he wants conservatism to be more... Conservatism is conservatism, but from now on, no more Mr. Nice Guy. 
The point I'm trying to make is that it comes pretty close to being a question of temperament, of attitude, of pugnacity. You're saying more than that, though, are you not? I like what Chris is saying. What I, what I would add is, is that uh, the, the temperament of pugnacity and, and, and fighting uh, is necessary in a time when you need a restoration. Right. It, uh, conservatives don't. Conser there is no, there is no single thing that is uh, is is the political practice of conservation and transmission. Everything everything decays. Everything winds down. Every good thing in time uh, goes through a kind of a, 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 a process of weakening and uh, growing faint. And to uh, to save it, to, which is here we're talking about saving a nation. To save it, what's necessary is for people in a time of decay to contemplate the appropriate means for what's called restoration. Right. And restoration is look, it's 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 not a counter revolution because our our goal is not to uh, to destroy and start over. It uh, a restoration seeks to uh, uh, to adjust to adjust the course, maybe that adjustment needs to be very powerful. And that adjustment is based on things that used to work. So the conservative, and you read about this in Selden and, and his great student Burke, that the conservative is not trying to say whatever we have at any given moment is good. That's, that would be absurd, that's, that's brainless. The conservative, according to the Anglo-American conservative tradition, is looking to say, in a period where things have wound down, where they are decaying, what needs to be done in order to achieve a, a, a restoration, a reconstruction that will bring back some of the things that used to work and that made our country great? Right. Conservatism in the Bible. Two quotations. I should also say, this is not a book of political philosophy, although that's what I keep hammering on you on, and this, this tells, uh, it is a book of political philosophy, it's a work of history, and it's also a personal narrative. You describe your own search, your own life as a conservative. So I commend the book as many books in one. And the correct title is Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Quote, a conservative approach to politics and morals cannot be made to work without the God of Scripture, close quote. George Washington, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, our religion and morality are the indispensable supports, close quote. Now, are you saying just exactly what Washington said? Or is Washington, does Washington sound a little too instrumental to you? We need religion because our real aim is a certain kind of political prosperity, and a religion is is instrumentally useful to achieving that end. Are you happy with? Does Washington seem that way to you, or are you saying exactly what? Are you saying exactly what Washington is saying, or are you saying something more? Well, I, I'd like to I, I'd like to take both. I mean, I I I, I definitely think that the uh, um, that this old view that you need tradition for for the sake of order, you need tradition for the sake of more more. Uh, you need religion for the sake of order, for the sake of morals, for for the sake of uh, uh, the society being uh, 
virtuous and prosperous. I, I believe all of those things. Um, I, I do in this book try to go beyond that. And uh, the, the argument has to do with, um, uh, with uh, the theory of knowledge. Um, the, the, the idea of being a God-fearing person, which comes from scripture, uh, is, um, it, 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 it's not a concept that's about being, uh, you know, quaking in your boots all the time. It's a concept that relates in the Bible to, um, to the existence of boundaries. A God-fearing person is someone who uh, reaches a certain boundary and feels that he or she must not, cannot go further because beyond there, there is destruction. If you go too far beyond a certain boundary, you personally will be punished, you'll be hurt, and so will everybody around you. That, that, that's what it is to be God-fearing. So we, we find uh, um, in the Bible, um, uh, uh, biblical figures enter a city and they say, there's no God in this place. Right? There's no fear of God in this place. And what they're talking about is this, this feeling that people are so reckless, that they've gone so far away from a decency that the city is going to fall, that, mm. that, that it, it, it will simply be destroyed. Now, you, you could also say that that's an instrumental, if you like. But the, the, the message of Scripture um, at a very basic level is there are boundaries today. They call them guardrails. There, there, are, there are boundaries beyond which men and women must not go. And if they do go beyond those boundaries, they and their culture, they and their civilization, they will, they will in fact fall. They will in fact be ruined. And uh, that is something that I think um, Washington and his, uh, his Federalist Party, I think that they were, they were very much aware of this. And um, even, even later generations, um, I, I quoted FDR using this expression, uh, God, the God-fearing nations. FDR saw the, the um, World War II as a, as a struggle between God-fearing democracies and those uh, authoritarian regimes that did not fear God. This, the, the entire framing is a, right. is a biblical framing saying, we, we're not just about freedom. We're about knowing where the boundaries are that, 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 that a righteous person will not cross. So I, I, I think that was present for certain in the American founding, and it continues uh, uh, up, up until the, the, uh, uh, the 1940s, 50s, 60s, when we, we for the first time encounter uh, a new kind of American, the kind of American who says, uh, I sit on the Supreme Court and I think that uh, God and scripture need to be removed from all the schools in the United States because they're a violation of somebody's rights. That's a new kind of American. All right. Again, conservatism a rediscovery. In America and other traditionally Christian countries, Christianity should be the basis for public life. You knew when you wrote that that, that was going to be troubling arm. Provisions should be made for Jews and other minorities to ensure that their traditions and way of life are not encumbered, but the liberal doctrine requiring a wall of separation between church and state 
quoting from a letter that Jefferson wrote, is a product of the post-Second World War period. It should be discarded, close quote. Okay. So there are two pieces to that. Jefferson did write the letter. Right. It's in his mind. Yeah. But how does he how do how does he understand it? How do Americans at the time understand it? And where does where does this principle get when and how does the principle get distorted and elevated to a kind of sacrament in itself? Well, the, the American Constitution does not have any provision any provision whatsoever for the uh, the disestablishment of uh, of uh, Christianity in those states that have uh, have religious establishments at the time uh, all of New England still has official state religions and most of the rest of, of 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 the 13 states have all sorts of religious provisions in in their laws Anglicanism in in Virginia, Congregationalist, Protestant Church in Connecticut, uh, I forget the others, but these, these received state recognition and yes. to some extent or other state support. They right. were and established so, in that legal sense. Right, and the, the, uh, the original American Constitution uh, is, it, look, it, it, it reminds us, as in many other ways, of the British Constitution. The British have, you know, they, they have a single monarch, but there's a Church of England in England, and there's a Church of Scotland in Scotland, and there's a Church of Ireland in Ireland. And each of these has its own kind of autonomy and independence according to the ways of the, 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 the locals. And what the American founders have in mind is something like that, where each state is going to be able to figure out exactly how it sees the relationship between church and state. And the assumption at the time is that there, there is that there is some kind of encouragement for uh, for Christianity and religion in in the states. So the clause in the Constitution forbidding the establishment of a religion means that the federal government will not choose. The federal one government will, will not interfere in the freedom of the states to establish religions right. according to their understanding. Got it. That that's the founding concept, and it becomes uh, it it's what well, it doesn't become it it is. Uh, overthrown in 1947 in uh, the, the Everson decision that right after World War II when the Supreme Court for the first time uh, argues that separation of church and state is the theory of the First Amendment and then applies through the 14, 14th Amendment, imposes it on all, uh, on all of the states in the United States. That, that should sound familiar because that's, that's the template that then is used to, to dismantle American federalism in case after over case over, over, over and over again. Right. But it all begins with uh, the Supreme Court looking at things like um, um, uh, in, in uh, the McCullough case in, in 1948, we're talking about Chicago public schools have a program that allows um, uh, Catholic priests, Protestant ministers, and rabbis to come into the schools and to teach religion in the school system where the kids get to choose whether they want to study with a Catholic or a Protestant or a Jew. And that, you know, to me seems like, you know, a very, very um, uh, reasonable accommodation to, you know, to, to different kinds of religion. That gets struck down as unconstitutional in 1948 
on the theory that America is for separation of church and state. When, when which I is talk, historically inaccurate. Which is historically inaccurate. But, right. but we have to understand what's happening. What's happening is that, that there is, in fact, a, uh, a, a new political theory which later gets to, gets to be called liberal democracy, a, a democracy whose ideology is liberalism. And th that new ideology is, is, uh, is what it is that we're arguing about, whether there wasn't something uh, valuable, wise, and important that was thrown out, which has then led us to our current impasse, where we're, we're, uh, we're worried for the future of the country. All right. Now, when you say... Christianity as the basis for public life. I mean, all kinds of things. Well, what does this mean? Prayer in school? How, what does, what, what, how, would the, how would the country look different if Christianity were returned, were restored as the basic basis for public life? And of course, I begin thinking, well, wait a minute. Christianity has itself, the, a Christian consensus, a Christian moral consensus has fallen apart in the last at least quarter century or so. So you have, I drove past an Episcopal church this morning that was flying the rainbow flag. Some Christian churches support gay marriage, others oppose it. Some say abortion, it's up to you, figure it out on your own. Others say no, it's wrong in almost all circumstances. So you, you get the point. Yep. So, so how can you say uh, uh, the obvious point that you're going to raise, you're going to get an almost allergic reaction from the secularists when you say Christianity should be the basis for public life. But even for a sympathetic Christian, I'm thinking, what quite does Yoram mean here? Well, look, I, I, can't, I, I can't tell you precisely what, quite, you know, what, 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 what is involved because uh, America is a federal republic and the theory on which it was founded is that important, uh, important issues should be decided uh, through representative government at the level of the states. And uh, the, the, the step that I'm proposing, I don't in any, you know, I'm not, I, 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 I This is not a political agenda, exactly. It's an intellectual. Right, but it, I, I, do, I do hope that it becomes It's not the, a party manifesto. Right, certainly not a party manifesto. I, it, it is a, it's a theoretical framework that I, that I hope then can be turned into various, various political agendas, and they will be different from one state to another, and just as they are from one country to another. Right. The, the principle that I'm arguing for is that, th that every, every nation, every people, every place uh, where, where, where there's some kind of uh, 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 loyalty and community among people always has a public philosophy. It always has a public religion. Sometimes it's explicitly written out and sometimes it's, it's implicit and you have to tease it out. But every, every human community has such a thing. And the, uh, when, when we stand today, post-2020, and we've seen the, uh, the post-war liberal consensus, uh, uh, the, the hegemony of liberal ideas destroyed so that, that we have this, this woke neo-Marxism which is, which is pushing forward and attempting to establish itself as the new, as the new political philosophy, the new framework. You could even many have called it a religion. The new religion of the United States is going to be this woke neo-Marxism. And I look at this, and I think as as do many others, look at this, and I say, the only way to beat this is with something strong that is an alternative. Mm -hmm. What is that alternative going to be? You can't. The, 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 there are a few. There are a few Enlightenment liberals left, 
Some of them are good friends. And, uh, and they say, no, we just need to roll back the clock 10 or 15 years. It was fine then. And that, that's nice. But 10 and 15 years ago, the, the liberal democracy that America was 10 or 15 years ago is what gave birth to, to woke right. neo-Marxism. You can't, you can't say that's going to solve the problem. What, what, what we need to look for and what I'm proposing is a, uh, is a countervailing force that can be strong enough to stand up to that. And that means uh, defeating one proposed uh, public philosophy or public religion with another. In practice, what I'm saying is in those regions, in those states where there is still a sufficiently strong a Christian inheritance, where there, there are enough people who could look at something like this and say, you know what, the, uh, the old Christian framework is, was better than what's coming to save ourselves, to, to return ourselves to sanity. What we're going to do is we're going to restore uh, something of the old Christian framework. What does that mean? Well, look, clear examples, and I, I, I think many other examples could and will be invented, and I don't mean that I endorse all of them. But the kinds of things that I see uh, uh, Americans in certain states doing is, first of all, yes, ending the ban on, uh, on uh, Bible and, and God in, in the school system. That is, in, in, in the end, that's the heart of what's happened. And people who want to try to uh, restore... I dismiss that almost as if it was trivial. It's, it's basic. It, 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 is, it is basic. The, oh. the, the, the new American constitution post-World post War II is a constitution that says, look, we're a Christian country. We, we can eliminate God and scripture from the schools and the kids can go every day to a school where, where no one thinks that a God or the Bible is important enough to even mention and everything's going to be fine. And, it doesn't, and everything wasn't fine. Two generations later, people are having trouble distinguishing between a man and a woman. Right. So, so I, I, I'm trying to put a tool in the hands of uh, those Christians and, and others, Orthodox Jews, other traditionalists who, who are looking for what, what, what can be strong enough to fight this. And what can be strong enough is a, is, is a platform that says, um, as uh, by the way, as, as uh, William Rehnquist wrote in, in a famous dissent in 1985, that separation of church and state in Everson was a wrong turn. It was mis, uh, mis, misjudged, misdecided. It's a wrong term in American wrong turn in American constitutional history. The thing to do now is to put it back in the states and allow those states that have Christian majorities to uh, to establish some kind of Christianity. Now we, we talked about the possibility of God and Scripture returning to the schools. I think that this has implications for for all sorts of other things. It could it it could be pornography. It could be, um, uh, um, what, 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 what did I so, do? No, no, no. I'm thinking that every parent knows. We don't talk about it anymore because what, what could, every parent knows that the internet is a wonderful thing. It's also like having a sewer pipe pouring into your house. Yes. And we're not allowed to do anything about it because censorship is bad. Well, so, you, so Yoram Hazoni says, oh, yeah? It wasn't that long ago when people were able to pull themselves together and say that we won't permit, right? Uh, right. Look, okay. Ir Irving Crystal, my 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 my, me friend, mentor, my, my, my hero, friend and right, me mentor right. and hero, Irving Crystal. One of the one of the most famous and, and best essays that he ever wrote was supporting 
censorship of obscenity, what used to be called public decency laws. And he, I, I write about him in the book, and he goes very far in, in, in this. He, 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 he says explicitly that, that a, a government that is incapable of, uh, of restraining the public from becoming uh, debased and degraded in this way is a government that doesn't deserve our support. That's a very, very radical statement. It's now he he certainly uh, valued the, the freedom of the market and, and freedom of speech, but he believed that there needed to be limits. Mm -hmm. And where he reaches the limit, where you get to see uh, Irving Kristol as a thinker who clearly sees that there is a biblical and Christian foundation to uh, to America, you get to it at that point where he says that there is no issue. He says there's no problem with pornography. It must be censored. Okay, so I, I can see. I you, can see. You know, let me take yeah, you. Uh, um, now, this is frustrating because we've got a great big book here and a great big mind there, and this is television. We've got to kind of compress things. Okay. So that's. Um, you've touched on the way the country would be different if we had this kind of restoration, immigration. Let me ask you about two more, and I'll just state them both right now so that you can give us sort of a succinct, because we've got to, we've, I want to move on to one or two other topics. Immigration and foreign policy, in particular Ukraine. And Yoram Hazoni says, now wait a moment. If you're a nation, for sure you get to control your borders. So that's just obvious, right or well, wrong? Well, it's obvious. It's obvious to me. It's obvious to nationalists. Uh, the 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 problem is that if you think in liberal terms, I mean exclusively liberal terms, and you say, "Look, all human beings are equal. All human beings are equal. Are, are perfectly free and perfectly equal." So, on the what basis, right have you got to right, keep them out of Texas? What right for do you? Example? What do you have to keep keep? To, to establish a border at all, much less to use violence in order to, to prevent them from crossing. I mean, the, 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 problem, it, the, the problem with the liberal tradition is that, that it, it, it is too simplistic. It doesn't, it doesn't give you the tools to be able to say things like, um, a nation has a certain character, it has a certain co co cohesiveness. Um, immigration can be extremely useful, but only under circumstances in which uh, the, 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 the immigrant population is willing to assimilate, wants to be a part of the country, and is, is small enough so that, that in, in practice it, it, that's, that's possible. So immigration can be, can be very good, and immigration has to be regulated. There has to be a border. Where does that come from? It, it can't come from liberal axioms. They don't speak to the idea of a nation, its cohesion, its inherited traditions. For that, you need conservatism. All right. J.D. Vance, who is now the Republican nominee for the Senate in Ohio. This is J.D. Vance speaking in February. This is in the course of an interview. I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. I'm sick of Joe Biden's focusing on the border of a country I don't care about while he lets the border of his own country become a war zone. Close quote. Okay, so what does, what does Yoram say to J.D.? Vance. I mean, all kinds of ways the United States has played a quite a specific role as the great power, the protector of a, 
The term gets used routinely, liberal order, since the Second World War. There's that. It won the Cold War. NATO played a part in that. We were the big brother in NATO. That sounds as like something worthy of respect. On the other hand, we have this peace going through Congress right now that doesn't seem to make any sense. The Biden administration, I've seen various estimates, but it costs maybe 10 to $20 billion to complete the border wall. We can't afford that. But we're about to give $40 billion to Ukraine. Okay, so what does Yoram say about this? this? Well, first of all, I, I like JD, and I think that's a good piece of campaign rhetoric. And, you know... He has a job right now, and that's to, his, to win His job is to win the, win the election, and I, 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 I think that's fine. Um, I, I think that at... At, at the level of principle, um, the United States has, in fact, uh, um, in, in engaged in, in a great many unnecessary adventures over the last, over last decades, uh, fr from Afghanistan and Iraq to Somalia to... Post-fall of the Berlin Wall. Yes. You're not talking about the Cold War. No, I'm not talking about the Cold War. Which, Ron, which you argue is just Ron, and necessary. And Ron, Ronald Reagan succeeded in winning the Cold War without invading anything bigger than, than, than Grenada. Grenada. Right, right. So right, it, right. Reagan's policy was a nationalist policy. He wanted to. He he was willing to help the uh, uh, the Polish nationalists, the the uh, Solidarity movement. He he cared deeply about them. I identified with them, and he was willing to help them. But he didn't invade Poland in order to help them. He, he, he cared about Thatcher's Britain. He wanted to see a British revival, a resurrection of Britain as a, as a, as a, as a serious power and an ally. And so he supported Thatcher's Falklands War. He supported British nationalism in that case. And he did a lot to help, but he didn't himself go and in, in, you know, invade Argentina. Right. right. So the, there is a concept of America as perpetually uh, involved militarily as the world's policeman in every corner of the planet in trying to impose liberal, li liberal ideas and liberal order. That concept is post-Reagan, it's post-Thatcher, it's destructive. It's destructive, first of all, because, because America has other problems and it can't, look, people, people have this, this fantastic vision. They think that government can think about, you know, that the president of the United States and his, and, and, and his colleagues right. can think about 30 different major issues at, at a time. Right. It's not true. It's not true. You, the human mind doesn't work that way. Even if you're the president and even if you have a good mind, it doesn't work that way. You have to focus. You have to strategically focus on what's important. And what is important in America right now, in my, in my opinion, is two things. Number one is, uh, is um, taking, uh, taking those steps that are necessary to, um, to heal a fragmenting and disintegrating society, a society that is on the road to dissolution and God forbid even civil war because internal hatred and division um, justified by all sorts of important things is, is a real threat to the country. And the second thing that American presidents should be thinking about is the threat from China. And Ch China is a, a real rival, it's a real adversary, and all of us are going to be very sorry if China ends up uh, running the world for the next century. Focusing on China means that the United States can, has to tell its European allies, and this is, you know, th this is the same thing that, you know, that I said in Brussels at the, at the European National Conservatism Conference a few weeks ago, 
the Americans have to tell the Europeans, you have to deal with the, the, the security of Europe, its eastern border, its, its Russia problem. It's a real problem. It's, it's something that needs to be dealt with, but it needs to be dealt with by Europeans. They have to rearm and, and to take responsibility. So here's a simple the, statement. Yeah. Uh, Europe is more populous than the United States. You put together the GDP of Europe as a unit, include Britain, and you get a bigger GDP than the United States. And the $40 billion that the Biden administration is proposing to give to Ukraine is three times the amount of all the various European proposals for aid to Ukraine. Yes. So you get on the phone and say, sorry, we're out. It's your neighborhood. You figure it out and you step up and give them the aid that they need. Roughly, now I'm sounding like Donald Trump, but roughly speaking, that's correct. Roughly speaking, that's correct. All right. I, I'm, I, I'm not saying there's nothing whatsoever that America is allowed to do to help a country that's been invaded, invaded by an aggressive neighbor, but uh, at, at the level of strategy, America has one problem, and that problem is China. And China is 10 times the problem that Russia is. And the Europeans, they're, they're wealthy countries, and uh, they, 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 they have been infantilized yes, by, by decades of America taking, taking care of their security problems since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And this has to stop. It's, it, it's not good for them, and it's not good for America, and, and, and it's completely unsustainable. All right, Yoram, oh, this is frustrating because I'm ready to continue this little seminar, my, this personal seminar you're giving me. <laughs> um, Yoram Hazoni and his critics. I said at the top of the program that some of the sharpest criticism of the book, everybody's reading advanced copies because the pub date is today. Today, yeah. Uh, has come from conservatives. Barton Swain reviewed your book in the Wall Street Journal and he attacked your portrayal of post-war American conservatism. Mr. Hazoni acknowledges that Russell Kirk, whom you've mentioned, did draw on the Anglo-American tradition. William F. Buckley in National Review magazine, Mr. Hazoni generously allows operated, he quotes you, within the Anglo-American conservative tradition, so did Ronald Reagan, and then Barton Swaim says, so what is the criticism exactly? I Look, I, I, I like Barton a lot. I, I, I follow his writings. I, I, don't, I don't think that he read chapter six of my book very closely uh, because, because I think the argument is stated explicitly and I don't think it's that complicated. Uh, the argument of that chapter is that uh, 1960s fusionism is constructed out of a, uh, an alliance of liberals and conservatives. The terms of that alliance are bad terms. Why? Because fusionism is a public liberalism fused to a private conservatism. It is, it's, a, it's a theory that says, um, how should public life be governed? The liberals are right. The government should stay out of everything to, to the extent that it's humanly possible. And as far as transmission and conservation of the nation to future generations, it, it passing the inheritance along, that's a matter for private citizens to think about. Mm. And we tried that. We, we did it for two generations and it doesn't work. It, 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 it failed. That, that fusionism is in fact what, what cleared, cleared the boards to allow uh, woke neo-Marxism to, to d d demolish the liberal institutions of the United States and Britain. And so 
we have to um, reconsider the terms of the alliance between conservatives and liberals. And that, and, and I think it's very clear the the new terms have to be a public conservatism, a public uh, traditionalism in those, in those states, in those places where there's a majority that will support it. The public sphere has to support parents and congregations in, 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 in the work of transmission. But by the way, apart from anything else, you've said it several times here, but I just want to highlight it. Uh, this means a, a very explicit reassertion of federalism. Yes. You want the states to take a much bigger role. Yes, and, and that's because I, because I, I want to reinvigorate democracy. Right. Beca be, be, because the idea that the, that the bureaucracy plus the Supreme Court, that they are the rulers determining the character of the United States, it's been tried. It doesn't work. All right. Uh, one of your other conservative critics, although he's also a friend of yours, Matt Continenti, writing again in the Wall Street Journal at the recent National Conservatism Conference. He's referring to your 2021 conference in Orlando. At the recent conference, speakers proposed a government-directed industrial policy and held up Hungary as some sort of model for America. I'll take my conservatism without modification, constitutionalist, market-oriented, and unapologetically American, close quote. Okay, so let's just, I included that because one of the big attacks Matt's a friend of yours. I'm sure you'll, we can stipulate all of that right, right now. Right, right. You don't, we, 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 nobody's sharpening a dagger to go after no, Matt. Definitely but he not. tosses in there. He held up Hungary at the conference. Hungary was held up as some sort of model. And this is one of the principal avenues of attack on you, on national conservatism, and it's just starting, on conservatism, a rediscovery, that you are trying to sneak into the sunny distinctively American conservatism, a much darker, much more state-centric European conservatism. Look, I, I, I don't know exactly what, exactly what Matt, Matt was referring to, um, but the, uh, the broader claim that national conservatism is, a, uh, is European in character uh, I think it just makes no sense. I mean, it, it is uh, Edmund Burke and the common law tradition is not European. It's English. It's the it it, it is uh, a central part of the British inheritance of uh, of America, and uh, it's true that 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 conservative common law tradition is not the only part of the British inheritance. There's there's also uh, Hobbes and Locke and 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 Paine and and the the rationalist liberal tradition. Both of those things exist side by side in tension with one another in 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 the American inheritance. But and I'm I'm sorry. I think it's just frankly preposterous to claim that that if somebody is relying on Burke or Selden or or any of the, these these great English thinkers that that's European, whereas relying on John Locke is not European because Locke somehow is you know the the consummate American, whereas Burke is not. This is all. This is just this is just rhetoric. It's all it's hot air. It's not real. There's a real argument between between the the, the traditionalists and and the rationalist liberals. Let's have the argument instead of, you know, all this in, innuendo. Okay, a couple of final questions here. You again, conservatism: a rediscovery is not a book of excuse me. It's not just a book of political philosophy, and there's a very moving, uh, fascinating, and moving personal narrative here about, among other things, your time at, as an undergraduate at Princeton, 
and how you were inspired by the example of Ronald Reagan. I would like to play a clip of Reagan and hear which bits you approve of, <laughs> which bits, just let's, let's play this and I want, I want your commentary. This is a couple of minutes. In a speech I gave 25 years ago, I told a story that I think bears repeating. Two friends of mine were talking to a refugee from communist Cuba. He had escaped from Castro. And as he told his story of his horrible experiences, one of my friends turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. Well, no, America's freedom does not belong to just one nation. We're custodians of freedom for the world. And since this is the last speech that I will give as president, I think it's fitting to leave one final thought, an observation about a country which I love. It was stated best in a letter I received not long ago. A man wrote me and said, you can go to live in France, but you cannot become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Turkey or Japan, but you cannot become a German, a Turk, or Japanese. But anyone from any corner of the, of the earth can come to live in America and become an American. Yes, the torch of Lady Liberty symbolizes our freedom and represents our heritage, the compact with our parents, our grandparents, and our ancestors. Okay, there you've got this internationalist strain. Yeah. We are custodians of freedom for the world. Yeah. But at the same time, he's grounding it in a compact with our parents, our grandparents, and our ancestors. Do you approve of this? You know, I, I, I think I should say again, uh, uh, there are things that are appropriate for the Civil War, you know, for Lincoln to say right. in the midst of the Civil War. And there are things that are appropriate to say uh, in, in the midst of the struggle against the Soviet Union. And uh, the, those things are, they, they contain truth, but they don't, they don't contain the entire truth. All right. right? And the, it, for sure, I mean, we, we, I remember growing up then, I remember the, uh, the, the context of uh, America and its European allies leading an, an actual struggle being fought all over the globe in order to prevent the Soviet Union from establishing its tyranny on the world. Today, we, you know, we look at Russia. Russia doesn't seem like that kind of a threat, and we don't remember what it was like. We don't remember what that struggle was like and what it was about. And um, I, I, I simply I have no words, no feelings of dissent from Reagan, or Thatcher leading that struggle and 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 ending it and bringing it to a conclusion. Right. Uh, what 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 I what I do think is that that the um, the simplistic post Reagan view that says, oh, Reagan was speaking about being custodians of the world, therefore we we owe forty billion dollars right, to Ukraine. We, we're we're the world's policemen. Right. Uh, people, I mean, people literally. Friends of ours literally spoke in terms of the United States should garrison its soldiers all over the world, and in the United States, you know, the, the Europeans can can decide, for, you know, what what the right ideas are, and then the Americans will kind of implement it with with the muscle. That entire post Reagan picture is a distortion, and I I I reject it. Right. Your last question: You live in Israel now. 
Why do you care so intensely about conservatism here? Why does the United States of America matter? Well, first of all, there's a, bio a, a, a biographical question in, in there, which is that um, when, when my wife and I and our friends were in college and we were, you know, we put out this Reagan, Reagan magazine, but we had to, we, we were going to get married and we had to decide where we were going to make our stand. And, um, and at the time, we, you know, we thought America looked strong and sturdy and Europe, you know, looked like it was, um, you know, maybe a little bit less to our liking, but, but just fine. And we felt like Israel was the cutting edge. It was the, sitting on the, the absolute edge of the volcano. And the place to make our lives would be right there at the edge of the volcano. And, and, and we're happy with the decision. We've raised a large family and now we have uh, grandchildren and uh, I served in the Israeli military and, and uh, my children have served and, uh, and we're very happy there. And we're very happy with that decision. It was the right decision for us. Um, but somewhere around, not somewhere, it was the, the spring of 2016, I got a phone call from a friend and mentor, a, uh, a, a, a prof an American professor who uh, called me and said, Yoram, set aside everything that you're doing, drop what you're writing, and gather together all of the research and material you have on nationalism and put out the nationalism book now. We need it. Mm. And I pulled my head out of the sand and I looked at what was happening with the Trump movement in America and what was happening with Brexit in Britain. And I, I felt then, and now I certainly feel, that, um, that, uh, that, that, uh, that America and Britain and Europe were sliding into um, internal con severe internal contention and disorder. And that, uh, that if people, in America and Europe thought that I could be of help to them with my writing uh, by presenting these ideas, I decided that I would do it. And I don't go anywhere where I'm not wanted, where I'm not invited. Um, but I've, uh, since 2016, I've had uh, invitations you know, across America and Europe and beyond. And that means people find the ideas helpful. So um, I, I, I I guess I'm a little bit like uh, uh, in the um, in the tradition of uh, of uh, uh, Tom Paine and Jefferson in this one way that they they did feel that their ideas um, were relevant to other nations and they were invited and they traveled to other nations in order to um, to be of use and that's what I'm doing I'm trying I'm trying to be of use America is not going to fall without taking all the other democracies with it. And so what happens in America cannot only be of uh, importance to Americans. It's, uh, I, I'm an American citizen, but I, uh, but I think that others who are not, uh, ha we, we all have a very, very great stake in the health and well-being of the United States. And uh, I'm glad to be able to assist in some, some way. Yoram Hazani, author of Conservatism, a rediscovery, thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.